This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so we're going to uh, look at the bodhicitta first of all. So I'm going to give uh, a talk about the bodhicitta. Just yet, I sort of realised as I sat down to write this, where do you start with the bodhicitta? Because so much has been written uh, about the bodhicitta over the centuries, um, both poetically and also uh, as terms of treaties and doctrine, uh, particularly in later Buddhism. Um, so what I thought I'd do this morning is just go over the basics. In a way, it's a summary of the material that I've given you um, and looked in terms of what, why and how. What is the bodhicitta? Why is it important? How do we cultivate it? Uh, which actually I remembered was a structure that Dharma Dinner used on the bodhicitta once and I can't find my notes for her talk. So I might just be repeating what she said, but never mind. Um, but I also wanted to look at Bhante's specific uh, contribution to the discussion around the bodhicitta, because I think in training to be members of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order, it's good to be aware of what Bhante's specific contribution to the Buddhist tradition is. So I thought I'd start, um, in terms of what is the bodhicitta, I thought I'd start with the story of the Buddha himself. So this is the story noted down in the Buddha Bhanksa. So a long, long time ago, a really, really long time ago, uh, in a place very, very far away in a different world system, um, beyond even prehistory, <laughs> in a universe, a galaxy far, far away, um, there was, in this is the time of a previous Buddha called Dipankara, there was a rich Brahmin who became a, an ascetic or a, a kind of wanderer um, known as Sumedha. And he vowed to renounce his own liberation so that he might perfect the ten perfections and become a Buddha in future time, leading all beings to liberation all beings who were stuck in the darkness without the Buddha's teachings. He would make known the Buddha's teachings and lead beings to liberation. Um, so off he went on a long solitary retreat uh, to reflect on the perfections. And at a later time when he was ready, when um, there was what's called an empty kalpa, when uh, there was no Dharma, there was no Buddha in the world system, he became a Buddha and started what we know as the Buddhist tradition. <coughs> Actually, um, there's a later story which I quite like, um, which is that Sumedha, um, he's seen that uh, all around him there's all these preparations going on, and he goes and says, well, what's, uh, what's, what's going on? Why are all these, who's coming? You know, And the people say, oh, the Buddha's coming, the Buddha's coming. Um, so he says, ah, oh, a Buddha, that's a very rare word to hear. There's a Buddha in the world. So he um, says, well, can I help in the preparations? And they say, well, there's a, there's a great ditch, uh, and we'd like you to fill it. Um, it's a foot, it's sort of dirty, stinking ditch with muddy water, and we'd like you to fill it with earth so that the Buddha doesn't have to step through it when he comes. 
So Sumeda starts filling this ditch with earth. I think this is all really significant, but I'm not going to go into the story too much, but what it might mean. But anyway, he starts filling the, this stinking ditch with earth. And, um, but the Buddha's coming and he doesn't quite have time to fill it. So apparently what he did is he laid down his hair over this ditch and says to the Buddha, may you tread with your feet on my hair um, and cross over this dirty ditch. So that's what the Buddha did. And then he said, and may you tread on my birth, old age and death. And then he vows to um, become a Buddha in future time and save all beings um, from suffering, to lead all beings to liberation uh, in an empty kalpa. And the Buddha Dipankara predicts that he will indeed become a future Buddha. And then a very interesting thing happens that the Buddha Dipankara and the Arahants, so all the enlightened beings and the Devas, start to throw flowers as offering at this wonderful event, you know, future Buddha will arise in the world. They start to throw flowers as offerings, and these flowers make a huge mound of flowers. And the ascetic Sumedha, who's the future Buddha, um, sits on top of this mound and meditates on the ten perfections there, sort of surrounded by the fragrance of flowers. Uh, we could even imagine it might be celestial flowers like the mandavas. If you just want to go a little bit wild, can you imagine? <laughs> so I think what we get from that story is that the bodhicitta is an experience. It's not an idea or a thought. Uh, it's an overwhelming desire for bodhi, awakening, not just for oneself, but for all beings. Um, Bhante talks it a real reorientation of one's whole being. Uh, you know, obviously not just for this lifetime, but a reorientation of one's being for lifetimes. So it's Bodhi, the desire for awakening, but it's also Chitta, heart, which means heart and mind. So we get the sense that it's it's an experience that unites head and heart and action. Um, it's a reorientation of our whole being, um, our emotions, our thoughts, our volitions. Um, a reorientation of our whole existence freed from selfish concern. And it's expressed uh, in a vow. So Bhante summarised this as we heard the other night. Um, I place no limit on what I am prepared to do for other living beings when the time is ripe and I am ready. So the way that um, Bhante talks about that is that it's an aspiration to be open to helping people in any way one can. Uh, and he calls it a transcendence to limitations. Because uh, normally, you know, we'll, we'll help people so far, but not further. You know, like, you know, I don't mind um, if people borrow my clothes. But when it comes to my books, that's another issue entirely. <laughs> um, Uh, actually, that, the Bhante didn't ever make a formal Bodhisattva vow. Uh, I'd forgotten that. I read it the other day that uh, he just said, actually, for him, the precepts were enough. Mm-hmm. Taking on the Bodhisattva precepts, there was enough in that without having to make a formal Bodhisattva vow. Mm. But yes, usually it's expressed in this vow that Bhante sort of formulates as, I place no limit on what I am prepared to do for other living beings when the time is ripe and I am ready. 
So though it's an experience that involves uh, one's whole being, uh, one's heart, one's mind, one's volitions, um, it's more than that. And Bhante draws our attention to a teaching by Nagarjuna, which says that the bodhicitta is an, is, uh, an experience outside the five skandhas. So it's beyond ordinary consciousness. Um, I think that might be the significance of the mound of flowers. Skanda means heap. Um, anyway, this is slightly... You could, I could go on. I've got all sorts of theories about that story. But um, skanda means heap. So that it's almost like um, one's whole being, being, the totality of one's psychophysical organism, is transformed into flowers. Uh, and that they're, re- they're offered by people in a higher state of consciousness. So the uh, Arahants and the Devas representing a higher state of consciousness. Anyway. <clears throat> um, so ordinary consciousness, if you're saying it's beyond ordinary consciousness, what, well, what is that? What is ordinary consciousness? Ordinary consciousness is divided into um, what what's known in the sort of early Buddhism as grasper and grasped. That's the basic thing. We're dividing our whole experience into me and mine, self and other. Um, and, uh, and this is the kind of dualistic consciousness that's sometimes talked about in later Buddhism. Um, so we see, basically, we see the world in, what, in terms of what we can get out of it, what it means for us personally. Do I like it or do I not like it? Does it fit in with my sense of myself or does it not? Um, and we're always interpreting the world in those terms. Do I want it? Don't I want it? Um, this is me. That's outside of me. Uh, I either want it or I don't want it. But the bodhicitta transcends that kind of... Uh, kind of interpretation of experience um, and it transcends it firstly by I think when we when we look at the bodhicitta in terms of our own individual consciousness we think about it as there's me and there's the bodhicitta and I'm going to have it it's going to be my experience but the bodhicitta isn't um, appropriated into one's experience like that it's not an individual experience it's not kind of my bodhicitta. Um, but at the same time, it's not separate to us either. It's not sort of waiting in the wings, ready to pounce. I think sometimes that that language of possession can be a bit like that. There's the bodhicitta sort of blob, just waiting for you to be ready, and then he goes... Whoop. <laughs> so it's not our experience. Uh but it's not separate to us either. We can't kind of put it in that framework of grasper and grasped. It's not just mine, uh, but it's not just me, but it's not outside of me either. And I think this paradox uh, is inherent, actually. It's it's sort of very beautifully expressed in the Japanese uh, Bodhisattva vows. So in that formulation of the Bodhisattva vows, it says, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Though greed, hatred and delusion rise endlessly, I vow to cut them off. Though the Dharma is vast and fathomless, I vow to understand it. Though the Buddha's way is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. So there you get the sense of an impossible task. It's not something that I can personally do. 
Uh, it's not something that belongs to me. Um, uh, it's something outside one's current framework of consciousness. So it's a full expression of our being. It's this funny paradox of being a full expression of our head, our heart, our, our guts, our volitions. But it's beyond us. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond this framework of consciousness. And uh, it reminds me of a, a line in a Wallace Stevens poem where he says, it's beyond us yet ourselves. And I think the bodhicitta is very much like that. It's beyond us and yet it is us. Uh, it transcends all categories. You can't say, well, I practice, I practice the Dharma and then I achieve the bodhicitta um, because it's beyond me as a sort of separate existence and it's not an individual possession. But at the same time, it's not sort of collective either. It's not like um, we have it all in common. It's not like we're going, the bodhicitta is going to arise in us and we're all going to experience the same thing that sort of somehow subsumes our individuality. Uh, it's not like that either. It's not that it's nothing to do with you. It's not like the Borg, if people are familiar <laughs> with Star Trek, um, where you're all just going to have the same consciousness. Uh, because it's beyond us even as a collective. It's beyond that whole ordinary consciousness whatsoever. And you can't say also that it's something outside of me that sort of looks after me Sort of this, the bodhicitta is looking out for me and steering my course, um, like a kind of separate. It sometimes Vanta calls it the cosmic will. That can sound very much again like this kind of bodhicitta waiting in the wings, steering our life, um, because it's not totally separate to us either. So Bhante says about it. He says it's a manifestation at the level of our conscious mental activity of something which, in a much deeper sense, we are. It's very mysterious. Once you get into it, you think, what? <laughs> Could you repeat that? Yeah. It's a manifestation at the level of our conscious mental activity of something which, in a much deeper sense, we are. So it's the manifestation. In, in a way, you can look at it as cam coming from the outside in. Um, and that's how it's experienced, because it's beyond ordinary... Uh, consciousness, one can experience it coming from the outside in but one could also say it also sort of erupts from the inside out, it comes into our conscious uh, mental activity, something which we already are so you could look at it in both directions um, so it's beyond the categories of individual it's beyond the category of collective uh, it's beyond self it's beyond other and Bhante said of the Bodhicitta, well, we shouldn't take it too literally. He says it's a myth. Uh, it's a way of pointing towards a profound aspect of the spiritual life. It's not something we can sort of categorise. It's not a thing. And it's very hard, I was thinking about this, it's very hard to grasp. I think partly because the way our, our current consciousness is structured is um, in terms of space and time. So we divide everything in terms of space and time. Um, and when we talk about time, we talk about bodhicitta as a, as a development. So this was expressed in Buddhism as the relative bodhicitta. This is the bodhicitta is an active force manifested in individuals. So in terms of time, we practice the Dharma. And um, 
something happens to our consciousness that's sort of beyond our ordinary consciousness. Uh, we become part of a sort of active force that's manifested in us. And then if we look at it in terms of space, um, we look at it as something that's sort of beyond change, that's outside of our experience. And this in later Buddhism was expressed as the absolute bodhicitta, as reality itself, um, beyond change and non-change, um, in a way something that, yeah, the thing that is manifested through us. And really, both ways of looking at it have their limitations because we're still looking at it within the structure of space and time. So Bhante says, in a way, what we need to have is binocular vision. Look at it both in terms of space and in terms of time. But really, it's beyond both. So I hope that's clear. (laughs) I think probably the easiest way to look at it is in terms of the niyamas, which is what... uh, Sabuti suggests that we do and I do think it is a much clearer way of looking at it Um, and in terms of the niyamas in a dedication to the practice of the skillful activity so one could say in the course of practicing the paramitas we loosen self-clinging so um, Bhante talks about this uh, very effectively in in living uh, wisely and he says, actually, the ego, what we call the ego, is uh, a way of functioning. It's not a thing in itself. It's a way of behaving. And um, if we function non-egoistically, we expand beyond our limitations. And the main limitation that we're under is the limitation of self-clinging. So the limitation of self-clinging is uh, this egoistic way of behaving. is when you close down on your own little world. And Bhante calls this the sort of reactive state of mind. Everything becomes about me and my responses to everything. And when we engage with the concerns of others, as well as our own sort of spiritual concerns, this is the creative state of mind, and this is behaving non-egoistically. We expand our consciousness beyond the self and other duality, beyond grasper and grasped. And in a way, Bhante makes the point, well, we all know how this feels. This is not new to us. He says, in a reactive state of mind, you feel cold and hard, as though there's a tight little ball inside of you, or as if you were constantly circling back on yourself. But in a creative state, you feel free and open, flowing and expansive. Instead of the little ball, there is warmth, radiation, a spiralling outwards and upwards. So that's great, isn't it? Because you can sort of... You can forget all the kind of complexity of it all and just see that actually uh, Buddhist practice is about expansion, um, expanding beyond that tight little ball and spiraling outwards and upwards, being creative. And we all know how that feels. We all know how it feels to behave non-egoistically. And I think that's what the paramitas are about. There's different lists of the paramitas, but whatever list you are using... And they're all about functioning in a non-egoistic way. They're all about expanding beyond that tight ball of self-concern. And when we function in a non-egoistic way, when we, when we uh, feel expansive, uh, when we open out to others, when we open out to our own, sort of in a way, our own higher nature, something else can happen. Uh, it leaves room for, for a different experience to come in. And these are the Dharma Niyama processes. 
So the, the Buddha explains it quite simply uh, in the Pali Canon. He says the clean cloth takes the dye. So if you behave uh, non-egoistically, if you sort of expand your consciousness, you're working with the karma niyama processes. And on the basis of the karma niyama processes, the dharma niyama processes arise. The clean cloth takes the dye. And, um, you know, the dharma niyama processes are different. They're beyond our ordinary consciousness, our, our usual framework of self and other. But they're not separate from us. They arise independent upon conditions. Uh, and uh, they arise independent upon the work that we've done in the karma niyama. I was thinking it's a bit like... Um, she Subhadramati gave a talk on the convention. She compared it to a rose. I'm, I might go with a mushroom because we're entering into autumn. Uh, and I don't know if you ever get this this, uh, this experience with, with mushrooms. Maybe it's around this experience with mushrooms. This can sound a bit different than I mean. Um, not eating them. Uh, but, um, yeah, you're just going for a walk. And where there was a bit of, maybe a bit of wood chip or um, rotting leaves or things like that, a bit of mud on the floor. And then under certain conditions, you know, it gets a little bit colder and um, the air's quite damp. Under certain conditions, this mushroom arises. And the mushroom is totally new. Like, it's a totally new thing that happens. It's incredible. Mushrooms are absolutely incredible, especially those big red ones with white spots um, <laughs> that you don't eat. <laughs> Not never eaten one of those ever. Just let you know. Uh, but you know, they, I just kind of marvel at them. You don't need to eat them. You just have to look at them. Like this completely, completely new thing, and incredibly beautiful that arose out of dependence upon those conditions. But you wouldn't look at that patch of sort of wood chip and mud and rotting leaves and think that that could turn into this amazingly new thing. And in a way, it's like that with the Dharma Niyama processes. You practice along in a certain way. And you couldn't ever kind of predict how something uh, so wonderful could uh, emerge out of those conditions. You just can't imagine it uh, in a way. Um, but they did. You know, the, the, the mushroom didn't come out of nowhere. It, it rose on dependence upon conditions. But it's a new thing. It's a new thing. And... Um, Actually, when Bhante talks about it in the survey, I really love that passage in the survey. And he starts talking, he says, well, you begin to live simultaneously in the transcendental and the mundane. Extraordinary thing to say. You just begin to live simultaneously in the transcendental and the mundane. So, um, why is it so important? Well, I think... Um, one of Bhante's unique contributions to understanding the bodhicitta is to see it as the other regarding dimension of going for refuge. So what does that mean? It's the other regarding um, dimension of going for refuge. Well, it means that within spiritual practice, within the spiritual life at every level, there's an element of reaching out, there's that element of expansion, uh, there's that element of concern for others as well as oneself. And if there's not an element of um, concern for others, then the practice itself is not going for refuge. Going for refuge will always have that dimension. True going for refuge will always have an altruistic dimension. 
So uh, this might be just fairly obvious to us, but actually what Bant is saying is something quite radical, because previously the Bodhicitta had been seen as a higher teaching, sort of taking over where going for refuge had left off. So um, in the Mahayana teachings, you've got going for refuge as a kind of what they call a preliminary practice. And when you've done that practice, you might be ready for the Bodhicitta practice. But he said, so in the Mahayana, you've got two paths and two goals. So there's the path of the Arahant, which is the individualistic path of liberation of self. And you've got the path of the Bodhisattva, which is the altruistic path of liberation for other. So the, the Mahayana has two, talks about two paths. But actually, Bhante says there's no such thing as two paths. Um, he sees them as dimensions of the same basic, crucial and unique spiritual experience. So there's no such thing as individual enlightenment and of liberation of self only. And when he talks about him realising this, he says that it, this thinking characterises the nature of the order that he founded. So thinking about that, you know, because you could just see it as like, well, just a fairly sort of obvious um, thinking about the nature of Buddhist history and how certain doctrines developed. But actually, he says it informed the way that our order took shape. And I've only just become to realise, come to realise sort of how, because what is the nature of our order? And I started to realise that this other regarding activity is woven into our practice. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we practice. It's part of why we do what we do. And it's so deeply woven into the nature of our practice that we probably haven't even noticed it. And I think what it means is that um, we practice in the context of a Sangha. So again, that sounds fairly obvious, but actually it really isn't that obvious in um, modern Buddhism, particularly in the West. It's a very radical practice. Um, everything we do, all our practice, is within the context of a Sangha. Uh, we haven't taken up the model where you get one guru who has a lot of disciples who live quite far apart um, and only communicate with each other when they're in relationship to the guru. Um, but that's actually how a lot of Western Buddhism has developed. So what we're doing is re really quite radical. So what that means is that, you know, our teams for festivals, our GFR groups, our study groups, our discussions, our meeting for coffee, all that kind of thing that we take for granted is actually really, really radical and important. Uh, and we don't realise, but this is because of this emphasis that going for refuge has an altruistic dimension at every level. And it's important because the danger of Buddhism in the West is it becomes what uh, Bhante quite amazingly calls pseudo-spiritual aestheticism, which you can kind of imagine him saying, pseudo-spiritual aestheticism, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> the little twinkle in his eye. So what he's saying is, and, and interestingly this has been taken up um, more recently by um, that uh, Slovakian philosopher Zizek, who says, uh, who accuses modern Western Buddhism of being the perfect counter, uh, the perfect sort of religion for capitalism, <sighs> because um, in a way uh, the danger of Buddhism in the West is it becomes a kind of therapy that um, helps us partake comfortably in the status quo without challenging society. 
um, you know, that we, we, we're very mindful and we're very relaxed. And so we don't seek to challenge anything. You know, we just carry on in our more refined um, practice of, of, of Buddhism. So what happens is our aesthetic gets better. Our houses become more Zen. Um, <laughs> but actually, we aren't fundamentally changing the structure of society. And this is a big danger for Buddhism in the West. It just helps us become more comfortable. And we end up refining the self rather than breaking through the self and other dichotomy. We just become a more mindful, calmer, more relaxed self. So he says, uh, Bhante says, without the idea of transforming world as well as self, our going for refuge is in danger of becoming an individualistic affair and to that extent in danger of being not truly a going for refuge at all. So we need a goal that's beyond a more refined me, more than an individualistic affair. And I think that's what the bodhicitta can really do for us, because I, um, and this is my own personal reflection, so, you know, it's not, not what Bhante said, but it's what I said, is that I've noticed with the language of insight, it can become a little bit self-referential and um, almost quite self-obsessed at times. Um, and actually, Bhante does talk about, he says, we talk so much about seeing through the self that we can make it, the danger is we can make it more real. We talk so much about going beyond this thing called ego that we're actually making it existent in the way that it wasn't before. Um, and I have noticed that sometimes that can happen, you know, within the sang, we talk about sort of me and my insight, but it's all about me, which sort of seems a bit self-contradictory. But So I think that's why the bodhisattva can be really useful to us, because, of course, we do experience things individually. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, um, you know, we do experience insight with a big or a little eye. We do experience insights. Um and I think the bodhicitta, the language of the bodhicitta can um, help us to go beyond seeing that as a private, individualistic thing that I have. Um, so, yeah, I think the bodhicitta can really help us in that area. And I think it can also help us in that area because I think if we're going to move towards something, uh, if we're going to move towards the goal of the spiritual life, it has to be beautiful. Um, and I think the bodhicitta is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and I think this is the other contribution that Bhante makes to this discussion. I think there's, he talks a lot about the link between spiritual practice and imagination. And imagination in the full sense, which means moving beyond our tight self-concern. Uh, something that can take us beyond ourselves. So I think in a way... I think the language of the bodhicitta, this is sort of my reflection, and the language of imagination, the way Bhante uses the language of imagination, are really quite similar. It's both about kind of going beyond um, our inward-looking self-clinging towards um, seeing the universe as uh, part of the same whole, seeing life around us as, as broader than ourselves and ourselves as part of life. Um, in a funny kind of way, actually, I think you could look at the definition of the imagination as pretty similar to the to the definition of uh, the bodhicitta. But that's another talk, <laughs> which I won't go into. 
But thinking about this myself, I, I was thinking, well, in a way, I couldn't devote my life to refining myself. It's just not interesting enough for me, personally. Um, I can devote my life to something that's about um, me and others and eventually transcending the difference between me and others. And I think basically on, on a really, really ordinary level, it means that I feel much more motivated to trying to move towards something that takes account of my relationship with the Sangha and my friend in the Sangha rather than just me. You know, something that, that takes us all together seems much, much more exciting than just me. And I think, you know, you've got all the images of the Bodhisattvas and they're beautiful because the Bodhicitta is beautiful. So Subhuti really draws this out in his paper on the superpersonal force. He says, when you progressively leave behind the illusion of self, you're not left in a state progressively lacking in self. He calls it the blank autonomy. He says, uh, selflessness has its own positive character. And uh, to quote uh, something that, that Amrishamati quoted, um, the Dharma life does indeed liberate one from the tyranny of self with all its suffering, but one is liberated into a, to an increasingly rich and subtle awareness from which compassionate activity spontaneously flows. So the Bodhicitta is very helpful to us because it gives us this sense of beauty, of something that we're moving towards that's beyond just um, lacking in self-clinging. Uh, it's the kind of positive aspect of the goal. Yes, we are lacking in self-clinging, but um, out of that grows spontaneous, compassionate activity. In some ways, I, I kind of think about it as, um, well, in a way, you give up all lesser loves based on an illusion of self uh, for a greater love that uh, incorporates far, far more. It's something far greater than, this, than the self that is compelling and attractive. And in, in a funny kind of way, actually, I was thinking about this in terms of stream entry because this is the way that stream entry is talked about in the Pali Canon. The Buddha doesn't actually talk about the three fetters that much in the Pali Canon. When he talks about stream entry, he says it's you suddenly have this clear, confident and lucid faith that the Buddha really is the Bhagavan, Arahant, Samasambuddha, the teacher of gods and men, uh, that the Dharma really is the, of the nature of personal invitation to be understood by the wise, that it really is progressive. Uh, that you see that the Sangha really is worthy of op offerings and um, a source of merit in the world. Uh, that you really see that your own behaviour is pure and clean and spotless. So you get this sense of something that's incredibly beautiful. That's what you realise, how beautiful the three jewels are and how beautiful ethical behaviour is. And so why would you waste your time on self-clinging in that tight ball of self-concern. Of course, then your whole being is going to move towards enlightenment because it's so beautiful to you. So I think in a way the bodhicitta is that sort of same goal. You'll leave behind those lesser concerns, the lesser loves, because it's something is in your mind that is so incredibly attractive that why would you waste your time? So how do we do this? <coughs> How do we move beyond this tight ball of self-concern uh, into this incredibly attractive and beautiful goal? Well, in a, in, a, in a very simple way, I think all we have to do is practice the Dharma. Uh, we just have to practice 
according to the karma niyama processes, the system of the spiritual life. But we do that with an expansive attitude. Um, there's one point where Bhante says, well, you need the kind of Mahayana vision, um, that expansive attitude, but Pali canon detail. <laughs> you know, Pali canon is very, very practical sort of text. And I think that's the simplest methods. I think, as I said, that the paramitas are really a way of, expand, of, of explaining how to expand your mode of being or your sphere of activity beyond inward-looking self-concern. But there is something a little bit more specific that Bhante draws on um, from the teachings of Tsongkhapa and Vasubandhu. And this is about what he calls increasing the tension between self and other. So usually in our spiritual practice, we think we've got to get the balance right between our own spiritual practice and then helping others. So we kind of get the sense, well, I'll, I'll go on retreat or, or I'll have the evening, one evening in my bedroom, you know, doing my own meditation practice. Uh, and then I'll help out on Sangha night the next night. And I think we think of this balance in terms of time, very much in terms of time. There's me time and there's them time. And we sort of experience this thing where we've gone a little bit too, too much in the them time. We've neglected ourselves a bit, so we go back to our, our me time. And then we think, God, I'm actually really quite lonely and bored. Um, and then you go back to them time. So Banti says that actually what we need to do is we need to intensify the conflict. That it's not about me time or them time, but it's about intensive spiritual practice in both directions. So he calls it to intensifying the two trends of thought and emotion. So the first trend is that we see that really nowhere in this world can satisfaction be ultimately found. We must liber uh, liberate ourselves. No one else is going to do it for us. So uh, we don't know the hour of our death. And where this is the first trend is when we realise we can't put it off. We can't put off our spiritual practice. I think sometimes we can get this idea, you know, when the kids leave home or where I get a when I get a better job, um, then I'll get down to it. I remember, um, actually, it was awful. Someone was talking to me about becoming a mitra, and um, they said, "Well, I'm going travelling for for six months, and then I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to be a mitra, and I'm going to really dedicate myself to spiritual practice." And I said, "Oh, oh, that's great, as long as you don't die first. <laughs> and they just looked at me in horror. <laughs> I didn't mean to say it, it just sort of came <laughs> So, uh, anyway, I just suddenly thought, well, what if you died, you know, while you were travelling and then you'd be waiting for your spiritual practice and then you wouldn't get down to it. Anyway, so she became a ritual straight away. <laughs> took up a meditation practice while she was travelling. <laughs> uh, so yes, yeah, so that's the kind of first one, is when you really take on board, well, this, it's now, it's here and now, you know, and I've got to do it for myself, can't wait for anyone else to do it. Um, but at the same time, you also see that the world is burning, it's burning with greed, hatred and delusion. Um, and that's us, it's the people we love, it's strangers, it's people in foreign lands. Um, it's looking at the news and seeing all the terrible things that go on. 
you know, and the world is crying out for meaning. It's crying out for an ethical practice. It's crying out for something that takes us beyond, you know, ego clinging. And I think there's a there's part of the bodhicitta practice is that you kind of make your heart break open. You don't avoid those things. You don't sort of turn away from them and think, well, someone else has kind of got to deal with it. Um, you actually really reflect on that. You go towards the suffering of others and yourself. And you don't hide in your comfortable life away from the realities of the world. It's a very, very strong thing to take on, actually. So the first trend is the trend, what Bhante calls the trend of wisdom. It's the desire for our own liberation. And just to make this, this clear, you know, the first trend is not just about trying to make our lives com- as comfortable as possible and, um, you know, having a hot bath. I mean, it might be having a hot bath, but do you know what I mean? It's not just about comfortable ease of making samsara work. The first trend is really about uh, intensive spiritual practice for oneself. But of course, if we... If we um, just do that, if we just concentrate on wisdom for ourselves, or liberation for ourselves, uh, there's a danger that we become a bit inward-looking, and this is the danger of pseudo-spiritual aestheticism. It's about our own sort of liberation, our own um, mindfulness and our own state of mind that can become a little bit cut off from other people, uh, a little bit precious. So we also need the second trend, which is the trend of compassion, which is the desire for the liberation of others. Uh, And again, it's not just about making samsara work for other people, it's about their own liberation. And of course, the danger is if we just focus on compassion, then we become uh, a rescuer. We were talking in our group yesterday about the kind of motivation of horrified anxiety that we can sometimes recognise, where we just sort of try and rescue other people without um, developing uh, ourselves. So we need both. And I think that's the beauty of the Buddhist's uh, conception of the spiritual life, actually, that you'd need both. Um, it's very beautifully put in, a su- su- in the Buddha's life, actually, in the Atadanda Sutta, where the Buddha says, um, very, very kind of, he's just talking about his experience before his own enlightenment and what his actual experience of living in the world was like. And he said, um, he said he saw people struggling like fish in water too shallow. He saw conflict. He saw how fear is born from arming oneself. And he said that when he saw that, he was afraid. And he longed to find a place of shelter. But he realised that there's nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it that is changeless. And then he said, um, when he saw this, he trembled. He was afraid, he trembled, he shaked all over. And then he discerned there a thorn. He saw that that thorn was what made people run around. That's what The thorn was what made um, people struggle. And that thorn was lodged deep in the heart. And he saw that that thorn could be taken out. And it's such a beautiful description in a way of one's own feeling of being lost in samsara and longing to find a way out, but also seeing that other people are also lost and seeing that that thorn lodged deep in the heart can be taken out. And in a way, that's the bodhicitta, seeing that that thorn can be taken out and that we can do it. It's also the profound optimism of the spiritual life that it's possible to be liberated, not just happy, not just 
make everything okay for ourselves, but actually to be liberated. And we also get the sense from that uh, sutta of the Buddhas that uh, it won't be comfortable. You know, that experience of, of the trend of um, wisdom and the trend of, of compassion intensifying those two trends won't be comfortable. And Bhante's language is very strong about this. He says you'll feel that you are wrenched in both directions simultaneously. So we're sort of pulled apart, you know. Our desire for our own liberation, the desire for liberation for others, will kind of pull us apart. And what comes out is not a happy balance, but a transcendence of the difference. So, yeah, so the spiritual life is about intensifying this trend of wisdom and compassion. And where are we actually going to feel that tension? And we could talk about that in our groups. But Bhante's contribution is uh, in this kind of dialogue is to see that we'll really feel this with, um, within a collective situation, within our practice of the Sangha, within the Sangha. Uh, we'll really feel that tension in spiritual friendship because we really care, I think. You know, we really care about ourselves, we really care about our spiritual friends. And it's an intensive context where our own needs, our own spiritual needs, rub up against the needs of the people we care about. And we can't drop one side. You know, we can't just focus on them and we can't just focus on us. And I think also that it's more likely, the bodhicitta is more likely to arise within a collective situation because it's within the experience, uh, the nature of the experience itself, that it transcends the individual and the collective. It's what's called suprapersonal, beyond the personal or the collective. So it's more likely to arise in the Sangha because it's of the nature of the Sangha. It's not of the nature of the individual as such. So um, Bhante talks about this. He says, where the individual enters into free association with other individuals, this is what we call the spiritual community. But you can envisage something even beyond that. We don't have a, any word even for that. We don't have a word even for spiritual community. But if you can envisage what happens as a result of the intensive interaction of individuals, real individuals, one might say even transcendental individuals, well, what results, one might say, is the bodhicitta. So it's beyond even the free association of other individuals. It's something that arises on the basis of that interaction. And um, there's been a word that's developed... Uh, well, last year actually, that, that's kind of trying to give an indication of what that might be like. And that word is Sangha Kaya. Uh, kaya meaning um, body, so the body of the, the Sangha. So there was an, an Indian order member, um, uh, Maitreya Nagaji, who sort of coined that word in the last convention in India. And it was quite an experience actually of being there because um, something really was coming into being that was sort of different. It wasn't just about a load of individuals sort of talking to each other. Something was coming into being. And um, when we started talking about this word Sangakaya as pointing to a particular experience, <coughs> one could almost feel it coming into being. It was describing something that was just a glimpse uh, that was the greater than the sum of its parts. All these order members from different parts of the world all united underneath um, the Bodhi tree, and something was happening, something was happening. 
so it's something of a different order that comes into beings when individuals come into intense interaction with other individuals. And actually the Buddha himself pointed to something like the Sangakaya uh, when he said that even he could respect and look up to the Sangha when it attained to greatness. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that the Buddha um, would see that even the Buddha can look up to the Sangha when it attains to greatness. He didn't really say what it meant when it attains to greatness, but it's interesting that he doesn't say when there are stream entrants in the order. Because there'd been stream entrance in the order for, you know, pretty much as soon as he got enlightened. He went away and took, taught straight away. It's more than that. It's the Sangha itself attaining to greatness. So the Sangha is not just a group of Buddhists. It's uh, Buddhist, or it's not just the order. Um, it's a potential. It's something great that, the, that can come into being on dependence upon the Sangha. That's what the real Sangha is. It comes into dependence. It comes, um, it rises in dependence on the communication of the Sangha. Um, and it's our responsibility to bring that into being. It's our responsibility to bring the Sanghakaya into being. Um, as order members or as potential order members. So yes, yeah, so we don't become the Bodhisattva as individuals. We participate in the Bodhisattva uh, or in the Sangakaya, which comes into being on dependence upon our personal and shared practice. It comes into being on dependence on, upon our intensive communication. And uh, Sangharaksha's unique contribution to Buddhist understanding is seeing that I don't become a Bodhisattva, we become the Bodhisattva. It's not about me as an individual, it's about the Sangha, it's something that comes, <coughs> arises in collective practice. And he says, so it's interesting that um, this term Sangakaya was was uh, coined because Bhante gives a hint of it in a, in a seminar where he says the spiritual community becomes a sort of spiritual body, you could say, or the spiritual community itself becomes collectively, inverted commas of course, a bodhisattva. This is why I sometimes say that the figure of the 11-headed, thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara is a symbol of the order. So this spiritual community itself becomes a bodhisattva. And the symbol of the order is Avalokiteshvara. So we are collectively becoming Avalokiteshvara. And Bhante says that we should take this quite literally. Um, and I suppose that's because Avalokiteshvara doesn't really exist outside of the spiritual community. Uh, it's not that there's this being called Avalokiteshvara who's there waiting. Actually, Avalokiteshvara only exists if manifested through the Sangha. Um, you know, the Bodhisattva is a force for goodness in the world, and to become a force for goodness in the world, it has to be ma manifested through individuals. So in one sense, we've got a real potential, and I think, like we really do, <laughs> I don't know how else to say that, we really do, and I think this is really coming much more into focus recently. I think there's a new confidence in the order that we really can become Avalokiteshvara, that we really can become a Bodhisattva. The spiritual community can become a Bodhisattva. But in another sense, we already are the Bodhisattva. 
because um, the order was set up by the bodhicitta uh, through Bhante. So that's what the suprapersonal force paper is really drawn attention to in a way that it's always been there, but it's never been drawn attention to before in quite the same way. That kind of confidence that Bhante um, was motivated by the bodhicitta to found the order. And he's always hinted at it. He's always said, well, it wasn't him who took on the responsibility. The responsibility took on him. So another thing we could look at in our groups is how does it make you feel to think that the order was set up by the bodhicitta? You know, quite a thing to say, isn't it, really? I have to say, when I really read the Superpersonal Force paper and it, and it said that, even though I'd heard these comments of Bhante's before, I felt a huge relief. Because I think within myself, I've always wanted to serve something bigger than myself, uh, bigger than anybody, in fact. So I think the bodhicitta um, is something that I could dedicate my life to. It's something that I could dedicate my life to serving. Because it's an experience of my whole being, but it's beyond myself. It's something that transcends ordinary consciousness, but it emerges out of ordinary consciousness. Uh, it doesn't seek to make a balance between self-concern and concern for others, but it intensifies the conflict. Um, it's something that emerges not only from my action, but from intensive spiritual uh, work with my friends. And I think I could also serve the bodhicitta because I don't understand it. Um, there's this lovely line from a poem uh, by Czesław Miłosz where he says, it doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. And that's a poem about love that was written in the Second World War in Warsaw. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. So I thought just before we, we have a tea break, I might just read out some of the... Um, some of the uh, Shanti Deva's lines about the Bodhicitta. So we could just even just close our eyes and just listen. They're just from the Bodhicharabhatai. At night in darkness thick with clouds, a lightning flash gives a moment's brightness. So sometime by the power of the Buddha, the worldly mind might for a moment turn to skillful intentions. But the power of good is weak while the power of darkness is vast and terrible. <coughs> what other good could conquer that, were there not the bodhicitta? This is the benefit seen by the sages meditating for many eons, whereby deep-welling happiness elates immeasurable masses of beings through happiness alone. Those who long to transcend the sufferings of conditioned existence, those who want to relieve the suffering of others, and those who want to experience joy in their own hearts must never abandon the bodhicitta. This is the elixir of life, born to end death in the world. This is the inexhaustible treasure, alleviating poverty in the world. This is the supreme medicine, curing the sickness of the world, a tree of shelter for weary creatures staggering along the road of existence the causeway to cross over bad rebirths, open to all who travel. It is the rising moon of the mind, mitigating the defilements of the world. 
It is the brilliant sun dispelling the mist of ignorance from the world. It is the fresh butter written up, risen up from churning the milk of the true Dharma. For the caravan of humanity travelling the road of existence, hungry for the enjoyment of happiness, this is a feast of happiness offered as refreshment to all beings who approach. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 